0: Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, thank you for its power in our lives. Thank you that by it we know you more intimately, by it we understand what is true and what is false, and by it we understand your will for our lives. We pray that as we study your word this morning, Lord, that you will open our minds to understand the depths of your word and how we should respond to it. And always, Lord, we thank you that you have provided us with salvation fully and freely, not by works, not by the good things we do, but by your only provision for sin, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and putting our trust in him. There's even one father who is in this service or the early service this morning who has not yet made that decision. I pray that they would make this most important decision, the most important they'll ever make in their lives, and trust Jesus as Savior. Guide us in the study, Lord, Lord, of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask, how many of you have flown commercially? I forgot the word commercially in the first service, and I said, how many of you have flown flown lately? (laughs) Yeah, in, in in a church with a lot of Air Force, that's just, you know, how many of you have flown commercially lately? All right, we've got a couple. All right, a lot of you have flown commercially lately. And uh, uh, when the flight attendant pulled out that emergency card and that oxygen thing, I bet you you were watching and listening with rapt attention, right? I mean, you were just hanging on every word, right? No, because by that time, most of you had your Beats earphones on or your... uh, Uh, AirPods in and you weren't even paying attention. Well, I came across a story uh, by a uh, devotional writer that I think is pertinent to Acts chapter 10 and pertinent to uh, church in general. He tells the story of the last, he, he asks us to think about the last airplane flight that we took. And he says this, when it came time for the flight attendant to impart the vital information about oxygen masks, exit doors, and the workings of your seatbelt, how closely did you or your fellow travelers pay attention? Most people were probably knitting, reading, chatting, anything, but listening to the attendant. And he said, I'm usually just as lackadaisical, But there was one particular flight in which I hung on the flight attendants every word. I was flying from Bogota, Colombia, over the high, rugged peaks of the Andes Mountains. The airplane I was in had gone into service in the 1930s and was not equipped with an automatic oxygen system for high altitude. So all of us on board were instructed in the use of the emergency oxygen system that might keep us alive. I not only listened, but I paid attention. I asked the steward questions to make sure I had it right. And then he made this application. In many ways, going to church on Sunday morning is like an airplane ride. You've heard it all before. You've sung the hymns a hundred times. The sermon topic is familiar, so your mind drifts and you don't really listen. And his conclusion is that we ought to ask the Lord to give us the same hunger that God's people exemplified when they gathered together to hear the word of God expounded and hung onto every word. Here in Acts chapter 10, and, and that's a good application generally for all of us, right? We should come here in expectation. We should come here in expectation. But as it regards Acts chapter 10, here was a group in Cornelius's house, a group of Gentiles, of his friends and his uh, co-workers, and a group of uh, his family as well. And here they were assembled ready to hear what God had to say to them. Ready to hear what God had to say to them. And we read in verse 33, Now we are all here, Cornelius said, now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. What a prepared group this was. What a prepared group they were by God to hear the message of Peter on this important day. We started looking at the message last week and we'll complete it this morning of what Peter had to say. I want to, first of all, share with you what the main idea of this section of Scripture is. The main idea is this, as we read through this and listen to Peter's words, the main idea of this passage of Scripture is that salvation is found in a person. Salvation is found in a person, not a philosophy, not a religion, but salvation is found in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the God-man, the one, the anointed one from God. And salvation is found in a person, not a philosophy, not a religion. You'll see as we go through this message of Peter's, uh, we will we, uh, we'll summarize a little bit of what we said Last week, the first part of his message about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, and then today we'll move into his testimony about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And so the, the main thought in this passage is that salvation is found in a person, not a philosophy, not a religion. There's a second idea here that I want to also talk about this morning, and we'll only have a little bit of time to talk about it, and that is this. You and I should be familiar enough with the Scripture. We should have enough Scripture memorized, and by that I don't mean memorizing an entire book of the Bible, though there's nothing wrong with that. I don't mean memorizing the entire New Testament. I don't mean memorizing the entire Bible. When I was in college, there was a, a preacher who had memorized the entire Bible, and you could ask him any verse anywhere in the Bible, and bam, he had it right there. I was impressed by that, but not enough to try it. So I'm not talking about that kind of memory. I'm saying that you and I ought to have enough of the Word of God in our hearts so that we can share the outline of the gospel with those whom we encounter, we can share with them about what Jesus Christ did for us. Share with them how it is that you are, get into a relationship with God through His Son Jesus. What will be the results of that? So we'll talk a little bit about that, but the main idea is salvation is found in a person, not a philosophy, not a religion, and we should be familiar enough with the scripture to be able to share, have enough, have a couple, you know, three, four, or five verses that we can use to share our faith with those around us. Well, last week we started into Peter's message, which actually begins in verse 34 and goes uh, through almost the end of the chapter. And to summarize what we learned last week, Peter began to speak of the life and ministry of Jesus, and he told the, the Cornelius and his friends and family He told them several things. He told them that it's Jesus who brings peace. It's Jesus who brings peace. Jesus brings peace within every one of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. God gives us peace with him. We no longer have to wonder, are we right with God? We no longer have to wonder, does God accept us? Because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah for that. Jesus brings peace. And he brings peace within... But he also brings peace between people. He brings peace within and without. In fact, peace with others, national peace within a nation, national peace between nations, all are predicated on a relationship with Jesus Christ. A relationship with Jesus Christ. He brings peace. The second thing we learned last week is Jesus is Lord of all. That is, he's sovereign over both Jews and Gentiles. He's sovereign over both Jews and Gentiles. The third thing that Peter told us about Jesus is that he is the anointed one. Literally, he calls him Jesus from Nazareth to make sure we know exactly who he's talking about. He calls him Jesus, the one from Nazareth, is the anointed one of God and God recognized that at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the anointed one. Next thing that Peter told us about it is that he shared Jesus' works, his doing good, his his healings, which verified and substantiated who he was and what he was doing. It verified and substantiated who he was And what he was doing. And then lastly, he shared in verse 38 how Jesus had freed those who were under the power of Satan, thus showing us that Jesus is sovereign over Satan. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. So that's where he begins. He begins with the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, Starting in verse 39, he begins to talk about the fact that he and the other apostles were witnesses of what Jesus did. And he starts to hone in on Jesus' sacrifice. He says this, We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Now, what I want you to notice here is that Peter, in his message, he mentions briefly how Jesus died for them, but he spends most of his time in this passage talking about what? The resurrection. The resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection is the proof that God accepts God, Jesus' ministry. The resurrection is the proof that God accepts Jesus' sacrifice. So he spent the majority of his time in this message, at least what's recorded for us in the book of Acts, he spent the majority of his time talking about the resurrection. I would be willing to say that for a lot of us, we spend the majority of our time talking about of our time And our witness talking about what? The crucifixion. Jesus' death. And I think sometimes we give short shrift to the resurrection. But Peter focuses here on the resurrection. He obviously mentions Jesus' death on Calvary's cross, but he spends his time talking about the resurrection. He says... We are witnesses. Peter, Peter was an eyewitness. Peter was an eyewitness. The other apostles were eyewitnesses of what Jesus did. They were eyewitnesses of his arrest. They were eyewitnesses of his death. They were eyewitnesses of his burial. They were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. As you look at Peter's message here, it very much parallels what Paul calls the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. We've talked about this before. I just want to remind you that if you've ever asked the question, well, what specifically is the gospel? Paul answers that question in 1 Corinthians 15. You don't have to turn there, but write down 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3. What I received... Peter begins by by telling them in the first two verses, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Paul goes on to explain what is this gospel. For what I received I passed on to you as of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. The implication there is, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, over 250 people who saw Jesus alive from the dead are still alive themselves. Go find them and get their eyewitness testimony. Then he talks about others who had seen Jesus. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. They were eyewitnesses. They knew what they were talking about. And we have their eyewitness accounts in this book. We have their eyewitness accounts that we can trust in this book. They were eyewitnesses of what Jesus did. Five times in the book of Acts, the apostles are named as witnesses. Five times in the book of Acts, the apostles are named as witnesses. Chapter 2, verse 32. Chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 5, verse 32. Chapter 10, verse 41. Chapter 13, verses 30 and 31. Five times they are called witnesses. Remember, that's what Jesus called them to do. That's what Jesus called them to do, to be witnesses to him. Well, he goes on to say, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now that's interesting. Why does does Peter hone in on that? By we who ate and drank with Jesus after his death. Didn't they do it before his death? Sure. They lived with him, traveled with him, heard him teach, ate and drank with him. But Peter here is focusing on on the fact that Jesus ate and drank with them after the resurrection from the dead. Why is he focusing on that? Because he wants them to know, he wants Cornelius and his family and his friends to know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised bodily from the dead. He wasn't raised as some kind of spirit, some kind of phantom. He was raised bodily from the dead. We're going we're gonna to talk in a moment about what the, the things were that were the same before Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And after the resurrection, we'll talk about something about Jesus' resurrection body, which tells us a lot about our resurrection body. But he focuses on that because he wants them to know Jesus ate and drank with them. He had a body. He was not a phantom. He was not an angel, not a spirit of some kind. Jews couldn't understand. Many of them couldn't understand the resurrection because they couldn't accept bodily resurrection. And Peter is trying to show Cornelius and his friends and family, trying to show them that Jesus had a body. He was not a phantom and because he had a body he could be seen he could be seen let's I want to take a minute there's some things that we ought to know about the resurrection body there are some things that we ought to know about the resurrection body and I, I just want to quickly and about death for a believer because I think it's important that you and I know that and that you and I understand these truths and that we are comforted by these truths number one when a believer dies, his or her spirit goes to be with the Lord. The body is laid into the ground. Uh, uh, the body is cared for in some way by burial, perhaps by cremation. The body is cared for, goes back to ashes and dust, as the scripture says. But the spirit, the moment a believer dies, their spirit, our spirit, goes immediately to be into the presence of God. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That is, a believer who has died, their spirit immediately goes to be with God. Now, their, their body awaits the resurrection of the dead. Their body awaits the resurrection. They are conscious. They are consciously in the presence of God. That's important. For us to understand, there is no such thing as what the cults teach, called soul sleep. There is no such thing as soul sleep. Our spirit, soul, that immaterial part of us, goes immediately, consciously into God's presence to be with him. Now, the second thing that we ought to know is at the resurrection, when Jesus returns, we will receive our resurrected body. If we have died before Jesus' return, our spirit goes to be with God, but our body lies in the ground in burial or in whatever form we have we have taken care of the body. But at the return of Jesus we will receive our resurrection body. Living believers at the return of Christ will be raptured. Believers who have died will be resurrected. Living believers at the return of Christ will be raptured. That is, living believers will will go from uh, immediately be raptured after the resurrection, after the dead are resurrected. Living believers will be raptured to be with Christ and they will receive immediately their resurrection bodies. But before that happens, those who are dead in Christ will be raised, resurrected from the grave, and they'll first receive their resurrection bodies. So at the return of Christ, believers will receive their resurrection bodies. Now the question often comes, what is that body going to be like? What will our resurrection body be like? Well, there's there are many things we don't know. We don't know what age will be in our resurrection body. We, we don't know that. Uh, if God gives me a choice, I have a few choices. But... <laughs> Uh, (laughs) we don't know because you know think about it we'll be in eternity time matters nothing in eternity we won't be in time any longer well that's a whole other thing Okay, Uh, there are many things we don't know there are some things we do know our resurrection body will be like Jesus' body Paul said this in Philippians 3.20 but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In other words, Jesus in his power will transform your body and my body to be like his resurrection body. So when we ask the question, what will our resurrection body be like? The answer to it is, like his. Well, how do we know what his was like? That's what... Peter just told us. We ate with him. We were able to touch him. So what will our resurrection bodies be like? Well, let me let me share with you from the uh, one commentary that spoke about Philippians 3.20. At the rapture of the church, Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Then every child of God will be made like the Son of God. That is, all Christians will receive glorified bodies like his no more will they have the limitations they now experience in their lowly bodies which are humbled by disease and sin their resurrected bodies will be like Christ and their sanctification will be complete now I don't have time to turn to every passage that we could but let me give you a couple that you might look up especially John chapter 20 starting at verse 19 going through verse 28 are two incidences where Jesus appeared to his disciples in his resurrection body. And we can learn a lot from those passages and other passages that I don't have time to turn to today. What will our resurrection bodies be like? They'll be like Jesus' body. His resurrection body, number one, bore resemblance to his pre-resurrection body. He could be recognized. He could be recognized. So his resurrection body bore resemblance to his pre-resurrection resurrection body. We assume that ours will as well. Number two, Jesus' resurrection body was not limited by time and space. He could appear in a locked and closed room. He didn't need a door, didn't need a window. He could appear in a locked and a closed room. So our resurrection bodies will not be limited by time and space. Thirdly, Jesus could eat in his resurrection body. That's the one I really like. He could eat in his resurrection body. Kiddingly, I told the first service, and then I thought maybe I shouldn't have, but here we go again. I picture heaven to be one long buffet. <laughs> Won't that be nice? No. I, I, I don't think, Nothing that we read about heaven says it'll be a big long buffet. That's just my crazy wish. But the point is that in his resurrection body, he could eat. Remember when he, when he was on the seashore and the, and the disciples were, uh, John 20, chapter 21, the disciples were uh, fishing. And so when they came to shore, Jesus had prepared some fish and he ate breakfast with them. When he saw them in John chapter 20, he said, give me some food. He wasn't some kind of phantom. He had a, a, a body of substance. So Jesus could eat in his resurrection body. And then finally, he could be touched. He had substance. He could be touched. That's why, remember, Peter. Uh, excuse me, not Peter, but uh, uh, Thomas was not present at the first, the first Sunday night when Jesus appeared to all the disciples in the locked and closed room. And Thomas wasn't present, and when the disciples said to him, Thomas, you missed it, Jesus was here. And Thomas, being the doubter he was, said, I don't believe it. In fact, I won't believe it unless I can put my finger in his nail print and my hand in his side. I will not believe. One week later, fast forward. This time Thomas is with the other disciples. Jesus once again appears in their midst. Now I hope I hope when you read the Word of God that you use your sanctified imagination. Now I don't mean imagine the Word of God. The Word of God's here. We don't have to we've got the Word of God already. But when you read it, get, get the atmosphere, get the sense of it, get the feel. What, what do you think it would have been like to be in that room with those apostles? To be in the room with those apostles? To be Thomas? To suddenly see Jesus in your midst and Jesus, hey Thomas, good to see you. I'd like to talk with you. You said you'd like to put your finger in my nail print. Well, go ahead. You wanted to put your hand in my side. Well, go ahead. Wow. I don't know, but if I was Thomas, it would have been like, oh, I was just kidding. You know how I am. I'm joking all the time. Now, you know what happened. He bowed before Jesus and called him my Lord and my God. Jesus could be touched. He had substance. So our resurrection, our body will have substance. We'll be able to eat in our resurrection body if we want to. We won't be limited by time and space. And our resurrection bodies will resemble our pre-resurrection bodies. Well, Peter goes on, verse 42, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one whom God appointed as judge, Of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is what I want you to remember from those few verses Jesus' ministry results in either salvation or what? judgment. Jesus' ministry results in either salvation or judgment. Everyone who is confronted with the gospel will be confronted with the decision they will either trust Christ and therefore be saved. They will put their faith in him as these people did. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Imagine what that must have meant to those people, to those Gentiles. Imagine what that means to most people today because most religion just seeks to appease God, keep him at, hand, uh, at arm's length from us. I'll go through these religious gyrations, Lord, if you just let me alone. That's what idolatry did. That's what idolatry was. Meant to appease The gods are God. But did you hear what Peter said? Those who believe in Christ, put their faith in Christ, receive the forgiveness of sins because you see, Christianity is different. We don't appease God. God is satisfied by the death of his son. The biblical word The theological word is propitiated. God is satisfied. God is propitiated. Jesus is his provision for sin. He accepted Jesus' death. Imagine what that means. I I know what it meant to me and still means to me. I know what it meant to me and still means to me. Everybody who encounters the gospel, everybody to whom we witness, will have a decision to make. And that witness will either result in their salvation and receiving the forgiveness of sins, or it will result in judgment upon them eternal judgment. That's what Peter's saying here. That's what other scripture tells us as well. Uh, We're, most of us, familiar with John 3.16. We often quote John 3.16. I think the problem is we stop too soon. Uh, It's good to be positive, but I think sometimes people need the whole picture They need to understand totally. John 3.16, as you know, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God, but but that's 16, but read on to 17 and 18. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's Jesus' intent. That's God's intent that the world be saved. The trouble is, There will be many who won't. But to save the world through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, every witness results either in salvation or condemnation and judgment. John 3:36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon him. It has to remain because they've rejected God's only provision for sin and death. That's what Peter is trying to share with Cornelius and his family and friends. Everyone who believes. I want you to see another thing here. The key element in salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. The key element in salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. All, he said in verse 43, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The issue is faith. The issue is faith. I shared with you John 6, 28 and 29, I believe it was last week, where Jesus was asked, what must I do to do the works that God requires? Do you remember from last week what his answer was? Jesus said, the work of God is this, that you believe in the one he sent. We can't work our way to heaven. We can only put our trust in Jesus Christ, the one God sent. Faith is the key element. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, for we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, not of ourselves, so that no one can boast. No one in heaven will say, I earned my way here. In heaven, we will all be thankful for the grace of God that accepted us. Salvation, the key element is faith. How about John 1.12? He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? The children of God. The children of God. John chapter 1 and verse 12. To those who believed in his name. See, the key element of salvation is belief, is faith. Everyone who believes in him Paul said, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He mentions here the prophets. He mentions that all the prophets testify about him. Uh, so if all the prophets do, I guess we gotta go through them all. Let's start because we have a lot to do before lunch. I'll just share one with you. <laughs> I'll just share one. How's that? Can we can we Make an agreement for one. How about Isaiah chapter fifty-three verses five and six, which is the chief prophecy in the Old Testament of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Ephes- excuse me, uh, Isaiah fifty-three five and six says this: "But he was pierced for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are." healed. That is we're healed of our transgressions. We're healed of our iniquities. That's what he's talking about. Then he goes on to say we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took your sin, my sin upon himself and gave us the righteousness, his righteousness that's salvation and it's based on putting our faith in him well i love what happens next verses 44 and 45 immediately the holy spirit interrupts peter (laughs) isn't that great immediately the holy spirit interrupts peter while peter was still speaking these words I'd like you to put a circle or highlight, if you use electronic Bible, put a circle around these words, because these words isn't referring to Peter's message generally, generically. These words are specifically referring back to the previous sentence, all who believe in him receive forgiveness of sins. At that moment, those unbelievers with Cornelius and his family and his friends, those unbelievers, at the moment that Peter shared that, they believed, put their faith in Christ. They accepted Peter's witness and testimony. How do we know that? The same way Peter knew that. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. God, the Holy Spirit, interrupts Peter's message and his hearers come to faith. The implication of this, and it's important, The implication of this is that the Gentiles were accepted by God on an equal basis with the Jewish believers. How do we know that? Because Peter never laid his hands on anybody. By the way, this is one of the passages that shows us the the, uh, transitional nature of the book of Acts. And you'll remember that I mentioned to you, and I'll just explain briefly what that means. But you'll remember I mentioned to you previously in our study of Acts that you never build doctrine on a transitional book. book of Judges is transitional. The book of Acts is transitional. And you do not build doctrine on a transitional book because we've seen diff- three different ways now that the Holy Spirit comes upon those who believe in Christ. Let me just quickly, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, the people were already saved. When the Holy Spirit came upon them and we're going to find out in Acts chapter 11 that what that happened on the day of Pentecost is they were the Holy Spirit came to indwell them. The Holy Spirit baptized them and from 1 Corinthians 12:13 we know that the baptism of the Spirit is when the Spirit places you or me the moment we come to faith in the body of Christ and identifies us with the body of Christ. In Acts chapter 2, they were already believers. They were already saved when the Holy Spirit came upon them, baptized them into the body of Christ. But later on in Acts chapter 8, when the Samaritans came to faith, they too were already believers when Peter came to them. And it, uh, it was the laying on of apostolic hands that gave them the baptism of the Spirit. Why did God decide to delay? Why did he decide to delay and not give the Spirit, not baptize these the Samaritans into the body of Christ till the apostles came from Jerusalem and laid their hands upon the Samaritans? Why was that? Because the Samaritan groups might have become a splinter Christian group. But what God was saying to the Samaritans was that they were inexorably linked to the church at Jerusalem. They weren't a separate group. And now we have Acts chapter 10, the third time we see this in the scripture. And in this case, it's more like what happens today that at the moment of salvation, they are baptized by the Spirit. That's what happens to you and me today. That's what the scripture teaches. The moment we come to faith in Christ, we're baptized by the Spirit of God. That is, we're placed into the body of Christ. But in this case, God circumvented and went around Peter, went around the Jews, and the Gentiles received the baptism of the Spirit, Why did God do it that way? Because it was a message to Peter and message to the Jewish believers (coughs) that God accepted Gentiles on an equal basis with Christ because God did it. God did it apart from Peter's hands or any Jewish hands touching those Gentiles. Well, then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then he asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now, a couple of things here. Peter quickly realized three things. Number one, He quickly realized that God was in this. God did this. This wasn't a human arrangement. God did this. He quickly realized that they needed to be baptized and he commanded that they be baptized, but notice that he did not command that they be circumcised. That would be an argument that would be figured out later by the church in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council when people were wrongly saying that Gentiles had to be circumcised to become believers in Jesus Christ, Peter didn't have anything to do with that. He said that they needed to be baptized, not circumcised. Because you see, water baptism should follow your putting your faith in Christ. It should follow my putting my faith in Christ. Water baptism is important. It doesn't save us. And it doesn't contribute anything to our salvation, but it's an important step and a step that Jesus commanded. Let me quickly give you what we should know about baptism in about two minutes, okay? Because we've got to get over to the lunch. Why should a believer be baptized? The believer should be baptized because Christ commanded it and made it part of the Great Commission. A believer should be baptized because Christ commanded it and made it a part of the Great Commission. A believer should be pra- uh, baptized because the early church practiced it. In every recorded instance in Acts, immediately upon receiving Christ as Savior, the believers were baptized. Immediately upon receiving Christ as Savior, the believers were baptized. Not because it saved them. They were already saved. They already put their faith in Christ, just like Cornelius and his family and friends. They already put their faith in Christ. The baptism was to identify them with Jesus Christ, that they were his. That's why they baptized by immersion to show that they had died with Christ, were buried with Christ, were raised with Christ. That's why baptism is important. Who should be baptized? Every believer in Jesus Christ should be baptized. Every believer in Jesus Christ should be baptized. When should a believer be baptized? And here's where we're really off today, in the contemporary church. Today, baptism is made to be everything but what the Bible said it was, which is that following salvation, I identify with Jesus and the church. Today, it's being made membership. There was a church in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where Kathy and I ministered. There was another church in our town and if you wanted to be a member of their church, it didn't matter if you were baptized ten times, but you better be baptized in their water or you couldn't be a member of their church. You show me where in the Bible you get baptized to be a member of a church. There is no such thing. Sadly, some people today, and good, well-meaning Christians and well meaning churches teach that baptism is a step of consecration. I'm, I'm going to consecrate myself to Christ. and I'm going to show it by being baptized. That's You don't see that in the scripture at all. Not at all. Or you'll hear a Christian say, I'm going to wait till I, I really am committed or to uh, Christ as Lord of my life before I'll be baptized. Really? You don't see that in the scripture at all. Every Buddy, who believes, was baptized almost immediately. So when should a believer be baptized? As soon as possible after trusting Christ is the best way. It shouldn't be for consecration. It shouldn't be for lordship of Christ. It shouldn't be for any of those things. It should be to identify that I have placed my faith in Christ. Baptism doesn't mean salvation. It doesn't save a person and it doesn't contribute anything to a person's salvation. It's simply a step of obedience. On the other side, baptism does mean that we identify with Jesus Christ as our Savior and we identify ourselves as one of his followers. It's a public statement to that effect. Well, I want to quickly mention one last thing. I mentioned earlier that the main idea of this passage is salvation is found in a person, not philosophy, not religion. I mentioned also that another idea in this passage is that we should be familiar enough with the scripture to express the gospel to someone. And I want to, I want to follow up on that. Uh, one writer said, before you can quote the Bible, What must you do? You must memorize it. If you take the time to discipline yourself to memorize the word, when the opportunity arises, you can quote scripture and help others understand the gospel. Among the early apostles, memorizing the Old Testament scriptures was a standard practice. They knew the word of God, and when the opportunity arose for a witness, they were ready. How are you and I doing with that? How are we doing with that? How ready are we? All you need to know is a couple... I'm not, I'm not saying you need to be a Bible scholar. You need to be a, memorize the entire Old Testament and New Testament. Nothing like that. Just need to know a few scripture. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, we'd like to get you guys in here on a wanna night. <laughs> we'll fix you up. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is... Now I know what a dentist feels like. <laughs> we're going to get this too. Romans <laughs> Romans 6.23, yes. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth, commendeth his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners. Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's not a lot. 3.23, 6.23, 5.8. You can throw in 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. want to add Titus 3, 5. Not by righteous things which we have done, but by his mercy he saved us. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. That's Titus 3, 5. All, all you need is a couple of those. I share with you the 10 words. The 10 words come from Dr. Larry Moyer and the Eventel Evangelistic Association. He puts the gospel into 10 words, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Right there is the whole gospel. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. We need to have a few of those. And I'm sure many, if not most of you have a few of those stored in your heart so that when God opens the door for witness you're ready you're ready let's pray Lord thank you for Peter's message thank you for the response of Cornelius and his family and friends to the gospel thank you that you opened the door of the church to Gentiles, that the church would be the most unique of bodies in the world, and thank you for your son, and that when we place our faith in him, we receive the forgiveness of sins. What an amazing concept. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.